I think what's going on with a lot of people right now is they feel very small. This situation going on in the world has made people feel very small. And some people are aware of that. Some people are aware of their smallness. And uh, But this has, has made a lot of people who... People who get a lot of meaning from the ordinary routine of their daily lives, and that meaning makes them feel large. It's how they take up space. It's their story. And this has made them stop. And in stopping, they feel like they're shrinking. And I don't know that anybody's sitting there thinking these literal thoughts. I feel like I'm shrinking. Oh my God, I'm sitting here shrinking. I don't think anybody's thinking that way. But what I see from people's response, you know, beyond the people who have immediate concerns right now, a lot of what I'm seeing is just this feeling of smallness. And of course, smallness is associated associated with powerlessness. Uh, and I made a joke. I make sometimes I make these Instagram videos. I've been doing it for a few years. Of just they're just the accents I do on this show, but it'll just be some fragmented joke that I find funny in that moment. So I'll just riff. I did one last night where it's a guy, you know, saying maybe it's larger universal elements conspiring to make us feel puny, and maybe it is. Maybe it is that, and. In that puniness, though, you can find a lot of meaning. Because there are people out there who try to act like they're, they're breaking the boundaries of human consciousness by letting everybody know how small we are. You think about that, that Joe Rogan, psychedelic dude type approach who's like, we're just these tiny things on a spinning rock in the universe. And it's a good thought, but when people say that shit, I feel like they don't go anywhere with it. They don't take it anywhere. And maybe they are. Maybe they're just trying to put things in perspective. I mean, who am I to assume what these people are intending to say? But it seems like they're just making that statement. And it's not just him. It's not just any particular person. But it's a common it's a common form of expression in this whole, you know, think outside the box. Just think about us, man. We're just specks of dust on this uh, largest speck of dust spinning around. And uh, there's this giant ball of fire that's bigger than anything we can comprehend. And it's not even the biggest thing in the universe either, man. Uh, There's that sort of approach. But again, I I don't feel like it goes to this other place. And what I don't hear expressed in that is how much meaning there is to being puny. Because I think we are small, and it's good to remember we're small. There are things smaller than us, and there are things larger than us. There are things that are so much larger than us, we can't comprehend them, let alone their wholeness. And we only get a glimpse of whatever those things are, so we can't possibly understand their wholeness. And even just saying that, I feel like I'm becoming one of those guys who's like, think about it, man. But really like w- what i mean where when i say like doing something with that thought would be yeah we are so small we are so puny but think about how much you feel think about how much you experience think about how much control you have even of this exact present moment right now think about how much control you do have you don't have control over everything no way but you have so much control You have so many raw feelings that you experience and that are overwhelmingly powerful to you. And you're small. So you're this tiny thing, and we're constantly thinking like, oh, let's put it in perspective. We're this small thing in this world that we can't even comprehend. It's so much larger than our just fleeting glimpse You know, it's almost like there's this conversation taking place, and all we get is a fragment of a whisper But within that fragment of a whisper, within that syllable, if it's even a full syllable, we don't even know. Within that syllable, we experience so much, we feel so much, we have so much control, and the things that we do in our lives impact everybody else and a lot more that we probably don't understand. You know, our impact, it's not just... 
you know, it's it's not just person to person. It's not just you interacting with everybody else who's alive. It, it, we're probably interacting with things that we can't possibly comprehend. And again, I sound like one of those guys, and maybe I am. Maybe I am one of those guys. Maybe that's what I need to understand about myself. I'm just one of them guys telling people, think outside the box, man. Um, Maybe I am one of those guys, but I'm also criticizing those guys. (laughs) No, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying it's almost like there's this other note that I'm waiting for. Like whenever people talk about how small we are and try to shift things and put things in perspective, I'm always waiting for this other note, which is the opposite of the nihilistic approach. Because the nihilistic approach is that nothing matters because I'm tiny in this much greater existence that I don't even know if I'm a part of really because I'm depressed and I don't want to leave the house, so I don't feel like a participant uh, in whatever that thing is that's going on that, uh, you know, and everybody else is so, so convinced they're so important and I'm not important. Therefore, no, nobody else is important. And I'm just going to crawl into this hole here. You know, the other side of that is, okay, I have so much control. I am exposed to so much. So much is exposed to me. So I can do a lot within that. I might be small, but I'm also powerful. And, you know, on the, on the most recent Every Night's a School night, I played that Jimmy Rogers, the other Jimmy Rogers, not the most famous one. And he has a song, Make Me a Miracle, you know, where he says, like, you know, I'm a hut, make me a palace. I'm a cup, make me a chalice. It's the same idea. And I think it's the as above, so below idea that you hear a lot in occultism, in Buddhism and spirituality of any kind. Man created, or <laughs> God created man in his image. That's, that's what the atheists like to say is, man created God in his image. Uh, but it, it all plays into what I'm saying here, which you recognize your smallness, and that keeps your ego in check, supposedly. And then you realize how much power you have. If you're such a small entity, it's unbelievable how powerful you actually are, and that makes you wonder what else is out there. If I'm this small and this insignificant, and I'm this powerful, and what I experience is so significant to me, what are the larger forces capable of? What are the larger elements that make up this existence? What are they capable of? Well, possibly creating everything, putting things together in ways that we can't even comprehend. This isn't a God-created earth in six days and rested on the seventh idea, although I don't think that's far off. And I, I'm not going to tell people, read the Bible right now. You're, you're going through a hard time, read the Bible. But I think, I'll, I'll just get into this, it's a little bit of a tangent, not exactly where I wanted to go. But with the Bible, it's a resource, The Bible is a resource, and countless people have used it, and they're not all lying. When someone goes to prison and all they have is a Bible, they're not lying. It's the only, one of the only resources available to them in that time, and they are in an extremely raw and sensitive state. And I've never been to prison. I've never been to jail. I've had friends who have been. Uh, and they, they've described it to me. I haven't had a lot of friends. I don't hang out with tons of criminals, but I've had friends who have fucked up and gone to jail, and it's, I haven't even asked them much about it. Uh, it's, it's kind of personal, but what little I've heard about it is very interesting, and people do go. I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm talking too far outside of my area of knowledge. I mean, I've spent many, many years studying criminals, Uh, So I don't have a lot of firsthand experience, but it's like I've heard from friends, I've studied this subject, and I I think I'm confident enough to say that when people go to jail, they are in a very raw and sensitive state of being. And some people deal deal with that by being callous. They're already callous people. But there's a lot of people who go to jail and they're like, oh God, I need something. And the Bible is available. And people mock those who find God in jail, but where else are you going to find God? Where else are you going to find something of that uh, caliber? You know, are you going to find it in your day-to-day life when you're just caught up in everything? And 
distracted and you know you're thinking about what you want and you know how how important you are but no it's when you have time to sit and you know you fucked up you're in you're under a cover of darkness you're in a raw and sensitive state that is when something like the Bible is going to resonate with you, and it's a resource. It doesn't mean you have to be born again, although people who truly believe in the Bible, you know, true Christians will maybe believe you have to be born again. You can't just read it and take something from it. You have to devote yourself to it. You have to swear an oath, practically, and I don't have that belief at all. But I did have a realization uh, some years ago, you know, the idea of God was something I'd been thinking of many years, going back to when I was a teenager, uh, when I realized I wasn't an atheist, was kind of the beginning of it. And then as I had more experiences and realized, okay, I do I do feel like I experience glimpses of some larger force, whatever it is. Whatever name I try to put on it is going to be a placeholder. So I'm not going to try to tell people I believe in God. I'm not going to tell people I believe in some universal energy. I'm not going to try to pretend that I know what it is exactly. But just a minute ago, I was mentioning, you know, we get a glimpse. We hear one syllable of whatever that thing is. And then we try to make sense of it. And if you hear one syllable of a conversation, you can only go so far. But you also don't have... The, the thing about just hearing that one syllable of that larger conversation is nobody can prove you wrong either. So while you can't figure out what that conversation truly is, or if it even is a conversation, it could just be a stutter. That syllable you hear that you think is the universe or you think is God, that could be somebody stuttering, and they never get the sentence out. It might not even be a conversation, but I, I choose to think of it as a conversation. Uh, for as puny as I am, I can choose to think about what the larger universal conversation is, and I can call it a conversation, and that can impact my life to think of it that way. So that just shows you how powerful we powerful we are within our puniness. Um, but uh, I like the word puny, by the way. I, just, I love it. Puny. You're puny. Not everybody can say that. Uh, most people can't. You're puny. Like, if I say that in my normal voice to somebody, it sounds really harsh. But if somebody says it with uh, an accent, if somebody says especially a New York accent. I feel like that's one of those words that was designed for East Coast accents. Puny. You're puny. Oh, you think you're all big, Mr. Human Being. Well, it turns out you're puny. Um, but I'm going to put you in your place, Mr. Puny. Uh, but it's one of those things, though, where it's like you are hearing just this syllable. You're getting this just fragment of a conversation, a syllable. And it could be a stutter. It could be a long, eloquent speech. And you're getting that little syllable. And if you even say that, if you say that, oh, I think there's a larger conversation taking place that we only get a syllable of, but I'm going to choose to to see it as part of a conversation, nobody can challenge that either. And I think that's one of the fundamental problems with atheism is that atheists think they know, but they're using the same evidence that you have. And they've immersed themselves in the tunnel vision of science, uh, the tunnel vision of human-defined meaning. You know, we've found a system, and we're going to use only that system for trying to understand what this thing is. And that system works in certain ways. We can use that system to modify and manipulate our surroundings and discover the components that are inside the larger components. And nobody's denying that. I mean, people do, but I'm not denying that. I believe that science is a system that works within the confines of our puniness. You know, that's, it's another example of the power we have within our smallness, the fact that we can develop systems for modifying, changing, and doing all kinds of things 
using science, medicine, you know, the fact that we can even build computers, the fact that, that all of these things come from the earth and they look like nothing natural. You know, the fact that your phone looks the way it does, the fact that there's no naturally occurring, nothing grows on the earth. There are no rock formations. Nothing looks like a phone, yet that phone comes from the earth. And that's another one of those things that these consciousness guys like to point out. You ever think about how this thing comes from the earth? But it's a good thought to have. You realize how much we are capable of within our smallness. But the idea that it ends there, the idea that it ends with science, that we come up with these systems and we come up with these devices, we do all of these things that are seemingly unnatural, yet they come from our natural existence. But to think that that's the edge, that that's it, uh, you know, to think that that's the entire conversation is arrogant. It's very arrogant. And it's almost religious. I would say in a lot of ways it is religious. Um, so while you might be making assumptions because you heard a syllable that could have just been a stammer or a stutter and you assume it's part of something larger, the person who's telling you it's not doesn't have anything else to go off of either. And, uh, you know, that's why I, I've always gravitated toward an agnostic approach, an open-minded agnostic approach. And I don't even like the term agnosticism. I don't even like calling myself an agnostic. That's what I started calling myself as a teenager if I had to, if I was being interrogated, which some people will do. That sounds like a joke, but there, people will interrogate you if you even suggest that you are open to something. If you just don't outright dismiss something, there are people who will interrogate you over that and try to undermine all of your credibility. You see that with, uh, you know, the brand of pseudoscience. And when people label so-called pseudoscience dangerous, you know, if someone wants to go to a psychic medium, let them. Let them go. Let them go to a psychic medium. But there are people out there who are in the cult of science who actually use the word dangerous to describe uh, these, you know, the, if someone wants to pay money to get their palm read, it's not dangerous. Yeah, they might put too much, emph- they might put too much meaning on it. They might be trying to get more out of that than it can possibly offer them. Absolutely, I agree. But to say that it's dangerous or to, to brand things pseudoscience, you know, in our modern age, you know, you think about the scarlet letter being branded with the letter A to mean adultery. Uh, you see where, you know, I, I mentioned in the recent episode where I got shamed at the grocery store the other day. We can't seem to stop shaming each other. We can't seem to stop blaming each other, but we can't seem to stop shaming each other. And when one opportunity to shame goes away, we manage to find another. So in the same way that, you know, the religious people would brand somebody an adulterer with a letter A, everybody needs to know, everybody needs to know that this person was an adulterer. You know, in the same way that that was done, you see this now. And if you go on Wikipedia and you just look up anything that's, you know, parapsychology, supernatural, any kind of study that's based around those sorts of ideas, you'll see in the very first, in the intro to the article, to say, this is a pseudoscience. And if you're to talk to a lot of uh, scientific-minded people, they'll act like these things are, are, are dangerous to our very existence. And... The example they'll use is, is when people, say someone tries to, say someone's sick, say someone has a disease, and they try to get um, almost this paranormal, they, they, they try to, they try to fix it in some way that the medical community wouldn't support. Let's just say pseudoscience, something that they would call pseudoscience. Someone tries to, you know, 
even just think positive, you know, because that's a thing too, is thinking positive gets challenged. Uh, people who are in this narrow tunnel vision will even be like, thinking positive doesn't do anything, and then they'll find that studies support that. And, and this whole idea of studies, a lot of studies are a waste of money and time. A lot of scientific studies are a waste. When they're, when they're done to prove things that people have already just known and done, like, oh, it turns out, like, if you play pleasant-sounding music for plants, they grow taller and stronger. Duh. You know, duh. You know, and just, it, there, there's a harmony to music, and, and we respond to that, and we associate that with something. So why would a plant not respond to that, too? That's dangerous. It's a dangerous way of thinking. You know, there's, there's that idea out there that these things are dangerous. And it's like, even if someone dies because they tried to cure their cancer with music, is that dangerous? Well, we know dying isn't dangerous. You know, we know, we know that that final moment is not dangerous. We know the suffering, we should do everything we can to minimize the suffering. But if somebody themselves is dying and they choose to do something about it in a way that, in a, in a way that they want to, if they, they're choosing to die in a certain way, whether they are misguided or delusional, doesn't really matter. They are trying to deal with their own death. And as a puny little thing, that's a pretty incredible privilege. As a small thing in whatever this greater conversation or non-conversation or whatever it is, as a very small thing, it's pretty amazing that you have that much control over how you leave your body. And it doesn't matter where you go or if you go nowhere, it doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter the fact that you can design your death in a certain way based on what you are looking for, based on what you believe in. And in some way, someone who has some pseudoscientific delusional approach to curing their cancer might be in a greater state of peace when they die than somebody who is hooked up to a bunch of machines and desperately clinging to life. And that's something important to consider, too. Having seen someone die firsthand uh, a few months ago, having literally been touching a body of somebody as they died, I really understood the value of somebody being in harmony with that, how valuable that is. I think it's dangerous to be in a disharmonious state when you die. I think it's dangerous to be clinging and grasping and screaming and thrashing when you die. And of course, if somebody's trying to kill you and you're trying to get away, that's, you know, hey, do it. You know, fight it off. I'm not saying if somebody, I, I, I used the example recently of the knife-wielding maniac. You know, if a knife-wielding maniac is after you... Don't just lay down and be like, oh, I'm just going to let this happen. Although if you do, who's to fault that either? Because there, there are people who would be like, what do you mean you're, gonna, you're not going to fight them off? What do you mean? You know, if somebody did lay down and just said, hey, you know what? This is it. If they found peace in that moment, that's pretty incredible. That's a soul who doesn't need to reincarnate. That's a soul that, that doesn't have any more work to do. Um, and that was kind of the feeling I had, you know, with my mom a few months ago where I was like, oh, this is, there's no more work for her to do. And, and who am I to know that? I don't know if there's more work for her to do. You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. But it was just this feeling of, oh, okay, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing to worry about here. And you'll see that in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where it's very important in, in uh, you know, Tibetan Buddhism not to create this disruptive, desperate state atmosphere when someone is dying, both leading up to their death and afterward. And that's why they, you know, uh, a... A monk is supposed to come in, and there's there's ritual to it. And I don't care about the ritual, but I think the basic principle of that is don't create some disruptive state when someone's dying. You know, and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't 
you know, like, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying to save somebody if it's at all possible. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be using medicine and science to its full capacity. But I think even if you're using those, even if people are working hard, even if people are upset, and of course you're going to be upset, uh, but it just comes back to that distinction again between pain and suffering, where there is a difference between those things. And I know the difference because I've, I've been able, and I'm not saying I'm not overconfident, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a master of this, but there is a difference between pain and suffering. And pain is unavoidable because it's how your body and mind respond to certain situations. Uh, I, I believe that's almost always unavoidable if you're in a circumstance that causes pain. Maybe some people can reach a state where they can completely numb pain out. I don't know. But there is a differentiation between pain and suffering. And I think so often we create all of this unnecessary suffering in situations that are difficult. And that itself is more dangerous to me. You know, the idea, if we're going to throw words around like dangerous, which is just silly, that gets thrown around so much. Uh, but creating a really disruptive environment when someone is leaving this earth, that is more dangerous to me than them just accepting it or you accepting it. Because you have to accept it too. You know, you have to accept the fact that this is happening and you have a limited amount of control. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think we, we just have to be very aware of that. We have to be aware of our own tunnel vision. And I think the most damning form of tunnel vision is when it's based on something that works. Because if something works, you can easily become convinced that it's the only thing. And your vocabulary starts to mirror that. Your lexicon becomes entirely based on this one narrow pursuit that you have, and you forget that other people have a different lexicon. You see it with, uh, I'll use the example of subculture, where if you've ever been a part of subcultures or just, you know, witnessed subcultures, subcultures develop their own language, and the more time that people within those subcultures spend with each other, the more they forget that other people not only don't talk like them, but don't think like them, and they have a tendency to demonize those people. Their sense of normal gets skewed, and I think that itself is normal. It's normal to fall into those patterns. I mean, I have friends, and, and you know, we're all weirdos, and we have a certain way of talking about life, and it's easy for me to forget that not everybody thinks or talks that way. And that's why it's good to... I mean, that's one of the arguments for diversity and not this pre-programmed diversity quota that you see on TV shows or movies and all of that, um, but diversity in any just in, in just a general sense. Diversity in a general sense is good because it gets you outside of your tunnel vision. It makes you use other words and it makes you form other thoughts than the ones that you use and form when you're talking to people who are exactly like you. And uh, with these things that I'm talking about, these larger things that go on, you know, it's, it's easy to forget about them when you're stressed out, for one. It's easy to forget about them when you're worried. And I think in a lot of ways, when we think about death, we aren't thinking, when we think about death, we're not thinking about the actual death itself at all. We're not thinking about that final moment. Because when you think about what death is, yeah, you can say you're dying. You know, these people, these geniuses out there love to say, everybody's always dying. We're all dying. You know, yeah, we're all moving toward that place. We're all moving toward that point. But actual death is just that split second between your heart beating and stopping. It's a it's just this this you might be lead you know, it might be this gradual decline, you know, your your heart's slowing down, your breath, you're having a harder time breathing. But the death itself is this final moment, and it's literally a moment where then you're dead. And 
we tend to not think about that moment when we think about death. We tend to think of it as everything leading up to it, which can be suffering, unavoidable suffering, unavoidable pain. And you know, and, and that's what I have to say too, is even though I think you can differentiate between pain and suffering, sometimes I think suffering is unavoidable. I think sometimes pain can be so overwhelming that you inevitably suffer. But I think you can accept that too, hopefully. Hopefully there's a way to accept that. But we have a tendency to focus on everything leading up to that final moment. But the final moment itself is something else entirely. And I think we need to think about that final moment. And that final moment should be easy. And it requires acceptance once it's there. And, you know, uh, obviously I I talk a lot about my mom's death because it was important. And now with recent events, people are scared to death right now. People are scared to death right now. And they are scared of death right now. Even though normally they are, right now they are really thinking about people they know dying. They are thinking they could die. And... You know, I I think that it's important for me to talk about my recent experience with death. Not like I'm some expert. It's not like I see people die all the time. I've known a number of people who have died. One of them I was touching. One of them, I've only seen one person die, and that was semi-recent. I would never claim to be an expert. I think I would have had to have died to be an expert. I've never died. I'm not dead, so I can't claim to be an expert in death. But I've been as close to it as you can be. I've seen somebody who had you know, who was in very rough condition. I've seen a rare, a a rare infection do a complete number on a person's body. And I've been touching that person when they die. And once it was apparent that she was going to die, I was very sad. I was very conscious Uh, But I I was very sad. It was a very sad and upsetting moment in a lot of ways. But it was also, there was an ecstasy to it as well, because I didn't have anything to worry about. I was not worried about, you know, it doesn't matter how, like I said, these are all placeholder words, but just for the sake of convenience, I knew my mom was good with God. I knew that she was in harmony with the universe. I knew that her soul was in as harmonious of a state with what it is to be alive, and not just that, but as accepting of the inevitability of death as a living being could possibly be. I was not worried about her. If you even want to get into heaven and hell, I had no concerns about where she was going. It doesn't matter which uh, school of thought you come from. I had no concern for this this woman because I, I knew I knew what she thought. I knew how she felt. I saw that there was a certain peace in that final moment, and I wasn't going to do anything to disrupt that. In fact, it wasn't even a choice. It wasn't even a choice available to me to disrupt it, and maybe I'm lucky that I was alone with her. Because that's the thing we have to deal with sometimes, is that other people are not accepting. Uh, and I, you can never blame them for that. But they're the person who's really dramatic at the funeral, even though they didn't really know the person who died. You know, we've all known people like that. And, and we have to have empathy for them, too. Because they just haven't learned how to deal with this stuff. They just haven't. They, don't, they either don't know. Who knows? I don't know why they are the way they are, but we have to be accepting of them too. And it's easy to take what's an otherwise upsetting situation and and project our anger onto those people, and we can't do that either. I mean, it was like the guy in the grocery store the other day. Um, I ranted a little bit about him, sure, but at the same time, him getting mad at me for having more than 15 items in the express lane is basically like that person who just freaks out at a funeral, even though they're the last person, you know, even though they they weren't even that close to the person who died. To me, that's the same person. It's the same reaction. And you have to understand where they're coming from. But you can't let them disrupt your peace. So I think in that way, it was a privilege to be there with my mom, just her and I, because there was no other, there was no other source in the room who could disrupt that final peace, that final moment. 
And, you know, and, and so I do worry about, you know, people who are thrashing and screaming and grasping before that final moment and, and leading up to that final moment, because that just doesn't seem like the right way to leave to me. Whether there is a right or wrong, I don't know. I mean, once somebody goes, they might just go, and it doesn't matter what was going on even in the split second leading up to that. But I just know a lot of thought for eons has been put toward that idea, and there's a reason why the Tibetan Book of the Dead deals in that. Whether you want to follow it religiously or not, I think there is something to be taken from that. I think there is a certain grace in death and accepting death. Um, and it's it's the thing, though, that... I don't know. I, I'm wanting to talk about this because, like I said, people are scared to death right now. They are scared of death and to death. And I think people should... Nobody should welcome death. Nobody should say, come on, death. Uh, but they should they, they should accept it. They should accept it when it's there. And they should do what they can to minimize it. They should do what they can to not bring it into their lives prematurely or especially not bring it into other people's lives prematurely, not to push it into other people's lives. And, and that's important right now. You know, with everybody staying home, that kind of thing. That's so that we don't push death into other people's lives prematurely, even if they're ninety years old. It's not up to you, it's not up to you to decide. You know, it's not up to you to decide that someone's ninety, therefore it's okay that they get sick right now and die. That's not up to you to decide. So you should, you know, and so you doing something reckless that gets a ninety-year-old person sick and they die, that could still be premature. And that could still be through your own negligence. It doesn't mean you should go around feeling guilty, because you can't control that much. Um, but, uh, you know, it is something to be aware of. Uh, and uh, I feel like I had a thread I wanted to kind of follow through here, and then I just got really going on death. But I think that that's the thing right now. Suffering and then death, and then with the suffering, yeah, I mean, I think everything people are doing, everything people are focused on, both with the economy, with people's day-to-day -day lives, the people who are going to be living, we want to minimize their suffering, and I understand why people are mad at the government at any time. I mean, I don't see how you could possibly live a life where you're not mad at the government every single moment of every day. The government is one of those things like that you just can't possibly, it can't possibly be perfect, therefore it's easy to find reason to resent it, and God knows certain governments are far worse than others. But I think that kind of plays into this whole thing with death too, where do you want your final moments to be spent thinking, God, I hate Donald Trumpsfeld. Oh my God, I'm just so mad at Donald Trumpsfeld. You know, it's like, do you want your final moments to be spent on that? And I joke, like, Donald Trumpsfeld. But it might as well be the same guy. It doesn't really matter, it doesn't matter who you're talking about at that point. Uh, you know, and this isn't a defense of Donald Trumpsfeld, which is starting to sound, kind of sounds like my last name. Stonefeld. Donald Stonefelt, Jesus. Um, uh, but, but do you want your final moments to be spent blaming, shaming? And I'm not saying you shouldn't ask these people in leadership positions to do better, a lot better in some cases. And it is within your control. It is within, you, you can voice your opinion. You can take action. But, I, but there is also... You know, if you're, when your mortality is on the line, in your final moments, do you want to spend it blaming or shaming? It's up to you. If, if you find meaning through that, if you define the meaning of your life through blame and shame, then who am I to tell you to stop doing that? Because you'll just in turn blame me or shame me. Uh, and and I'm not going to tell anybody they shouldn't voice their opinion on what the government should do or could have done. But I also don't know that right now, I don't know that it's valuable to say that the government should have done A, B, C, or D. I don't know that that's valuable. 
I think they can say what the government should do now. And maybe someone has an opinion on that because of what the government didn't do leading up to this. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on what governments should or shouldn't do. And I have opinions sometimes on politicians and government. But I also avoid it when I can because I don't want to spark that, you know, I don't want to spark that kindling because it's hard to put it out once it gets going. And if it's a life or death situation, if it's about alleviating suffering, you know, that's important. It's very important to do what you can to alleviate suffering. But I also think it creates a different kind of suffering, too, when you preoccupy yourself with hating somebody. And I worry about that in the same way that the guy at the grocery store saw me as somebody who was making him suffer. Because that's what that came down to. I haven't been thinking about it. You know, I went on that rant and it probably seemed like I was just obsessing over this guy. But I recorded that right after it happened because it just happened and it was weird. Um, But thinking about it right now, I haven't really thought about it for a couple days. And, you know, that guy was suffering... And he thought I was causing it. And I didn't do anything to make that guy suffer. I really didn't. I I bought a few extra yogurts. I don't need to go into my defense case here again. Uh, You know, uh, I'll send my lawyer. I'll put my lawyer on the microphone next time I want to defend myself. I don't need to do it myself again. Uh, But, uh... You know, but just to get to the point, it's like that guy saw me in that moment as a cause of suffering. And the way that he was talking to me was that of a suffering person who was afraid of death. And that's what I see when I when I there's there's certain people and we all know them, and they are obsessed with criticizing Ronald Trump's Feld felt. They're obsessed, and they think that he is the cause of all of their suffering. Even though they're 50 years old, and he's been their president for four years, he is the cause of all of their suffering right now, so it might as well be a continuum where he always has been, he always will be. He might as well be Donald Rumsfeld. He might as well be Hitler. He might as well be Genghis Khan. He might as well be the devil. You know, that that's where people are at, where they find a devil. They find a devil. And the devil is the source of all their problems. And uh, But yet, if you talk about the devil, you're crazy. You know, there's a lot of people, it goes back to the, you know, this, this atheist form of thinking, where if you say that demons are real, if you were to call the coronavirus a demon, people would say, that's dangerous. It's dangerous. You need to stay in your home and never leave and not come into contact with anybody because it's this microorganism that nobody can see that could get you at any time. Sure sounds like a demon to me. And in calling it a demon, I don't think that that means... You know, you can call something a demon and still support medicine and still support science. These things aren't as mutually exclusive as people want to make them. I did an episode a while back about stress, and and I, I referred to stress as, you know, kind of a, it's kind of a wrathful deity. And that goes back to the Tibetan Book of the Dead as well, where, you know, it talks about the, the wrathful deities and the, uh, I can't remember what the good ones are referred to as, but these deities embody something, and they appear holding severed heads with, with, you know, swords dripping with blood, and they have these ghastly faces. And, and the idea in the Tibetan Book of the Dead is when those wrathful deities appear to you, you accept them. You don't try to fight them. You find a way to harmonize with them. And that will that will give you the passage that your soul needs, that will help aid that passage. 
that will help that final moment be one of acceptance, of peace, rather than disruption. And I don't think it's wrong to think of these things as demons or, you know, a wrathful deity is different than a demon, because a wrathful deity, even though it's called wrathful, it is trying to ease your journey in some way. It is trying to get you to accept something. It is essentially trying to get you to accept the pain, and in in accepting the pain, you are alleviating yourself of suffering. So when you accept the wrathful deity appearing before you in your final hours holding a severed head and a sword, you can either be like, oh my god, get it, get it, <clears throat> get it away. Or you can accept that that has appeared before you and accept it as a part of you, a part of your experience, and it's not going to disrupt you. And, you know, someone who's an expert could say, oh, you got it all wrong everybody's an ex- expert in something. In the same way that scientists will say, that's dangerous, that's pseudoscience, there are people who have immersed themselves in the tunnel vision of religion, of spirituality, who will try to tell you that your interpretation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead is pseudo-something. So you, you can really find it anywhere. You can find the same sorts of people doing the same sorts of things anywhere. You can even find it in subculture. I was talking about that. You can find somebody who's immersed themselves in the world of death metal, and they're going to tell you that you listen to the wrong things, that you're getting the wrong thing out of it, you're in the wrong t-shirt, you're not a true fan. And I have tendencies, I've had tendencies to be that guy. Absolutely. I'm always fighting off being that guy. Uh, but I also accept that guy, too, because that itself is another form of a demon or a wrathful deity, that part of you that is trying to control other people, that part of you that is trying to tell other people what's right and wrong, because you wouldn't do that if you weren't trying to control other people. That same part of you, that that's a wrathful deity, too. That's some sort of demon, too. And to go back to the demon comparison with the virus itself, you know, this idea that it's like this thing we can't see, this thing that in a lot of places we're not testing for because of, I mean, you can blame the government for that, sure. But still, it's like this thing that, you know, we're not able to really measure in most cases, but we just have to stay inside because that's what we're told to do. And that's the smart thing to do. That's the thing that will alleviate other people's suffering right now. But why is that not, how is that not a demon? And if you were to go back to some primitive tribe, the shaman tells people, stay inside because there is a demon outside, and and the people who go outside get really sick, and everybody sees that as some sort of demonic possession. Is that really fundamentally different from what's going on now? I don't believe so. And so I don't think it's unhealthy, I don't think it's dangerous, I think we all have our own framework for viewing these things, but what I do know, and I do feel that I know it, whether you want to believe it, it doesn't make a difference to me, I'm puny, remember? I'm a puny little thing here, but I believe we should be prepared for that final moment, and if it comes, you want as little disruption, as little drama, your death is so dramatic, you know, it, it's one of the most dramatic um, experiences we will have dealing with death, but, and you can't get rid of the drama entirely. I mean, there's a reason why the most dramatic moment in most movies is when someone dies. I mean, think about Elias in Platoon coming running out of the jungle when the helicopter leaves him behind and he drops to his knees with his flares in his hand and you know he's going to die. And that scene wouldn't be dramatic if Elias didn't die. Imagine, imagine Elias comes running out of the jungle in Platoon, and he drops to his knees with the Viet Cong behind him shooting, and he's fine. Oh, it turns out he's fine. And that's one of the reasons why in books and movies, when they kill a character off and bring him back, it's disappointing. Even if you liked that character... The drama and power of, a, of killing a character off, especially an important character, to completely negate that by being like, just kidding, 
it's it's also the it's all a dream trope that's been used a lot um it's the same thing where it's like oh i had to deal with the fact that this character died i had to deal with the fact that these events played out that were at, at, even just as a viewer even as someone watching a show or reading a book i had i struggled with it was painful for me as someone invested in this story and when they turn around they're like just kidding he didn't die I mean, that happened to me. That's what took me out of the Wheel of Time series. You know, I was trying to read the Wheel of Time series and I was enjoying it. And they kill this one important character off in the first book. It's very dramatic. And then, of course, he's alive in the next book. And it's like, come on. You just, ru- you just killed the book. You were worried about killing this character, so you brought him back. And you just killed the story. Good job. And that's sort of what I'm getting at. When you... Turn the moment of death into something disruptive. When you turn it into something that is grasping and clinging and clawing and screaming and writhing, you don't save the person. You kill the story. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.